0: Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 is another set of parables and stories by Jesus Christ. He is in the midst of uh, conflict with the religious leaders of the day. He is in the midst of conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who do not like his way that he presents God, not a way that they could control, but a way that God wants to relate directly with individuals. And so 14, Luke 14 starts with one Sabbath. So we know it is a Sabbath. We know it is a Saturday on a Sabbath. You do not cook food. All the food you eat on that Sabbath was prepared the day before. It could be kept warm, but you could not create food, you could not prepare food on that day. And so it seemed to be a practice back in ancient Israel that on a Sabbath, where you were basically having leftovers, you would invite people, you would invite your friends, you would invite your family, you would invite people that you enjoyed to have a nice, relaxing conversational dinner on Sabbath with these people who all believed the same way you believed. There was a guy that we only know as the ruler of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Pharisees so he was highly ranked and if you looked at the Jewish society back in the time of Jesus, it was stratified by By social structure, you knew if you spent any time walking down the street or going to the market or going to one of these dinners exactly who was above somebody else in social structure and that division came from age. If you were above 50, you were considered very wise and so you were higher on the social structure. It came by title and position, so this person who was called a ruler of the Pharisees, he was probably a teacher of the Pharisees. He was probably one who took um, neophyte Pharisees that wanted to join the club, and he would teach them how to do it, and he would teach them how to be that way. And so he was considered uh, very high up on the social ladder, as it were, and they there's even talk um, by Josephus and, and other people who wrote back then about how the higher people on the social status would, would dress differently, would dress more fancy. And so if you saw somebody with, with m- robes and multiple scarves and things, you know, flowing robes, you would know that even though you didn't know this person personally, you knew that they were highly ranked. And that you could, if you were to be in the same room with them, you would give deference to them. Because they were better than you in society. That's how it was seen. And so he invites Jesus. We know that he invited Jesus because Jesus never barged in on any dinner. Jesus didn't just walk in and say, I'm here. He had to be invited. He allowed himself to be invited. And so... This Pharisee invites him and a bunch of friends and lawyers and scribes and people that were like this Pharisee were also invited. And we know that it was kind of a setup because there was a person there in the ESV, it says dropsy, it is fluid retention. Today it is called edema. Uh, It is when somebody and, and people in this church have had it before, you get it from sickness, You get it from a reaction to uh, medication. You get it from interaction of medication. And your hands and your feet and your legs begin to swell because fluid is building up. It is treatable these days if it happens. Doctors usually know what to do to move it along and to get a cure. But back then, if somebody uh, just woke up one day and their hands were beginning to swell... And they swole more and more and more so that they were kind of balloon hands. That was considered bad. They would keep that person away from them because there was the thought that maybe this was contagious. They didn't really know about how various uh, maladies occurred in the body. And so that sort of person would be sent to beg at the city gates because they wouldn't be allowed and able, actually, to work in the fields because of the way their hands were. And, of course, there was no treatment. And so a person like this, one of these people, was brought to the dinner, not because he was hungry, but to show Jesus how wrong Jesus was, to make Jesus do a mistake so that he could be shown to all the people that he is a fraud and a false teacher. That is the point of what this Pharisee is trying to do. And they brought him and they just kind of put him in front of Jesus because it's a Sabbath and the the indication seems to be they wanted to see if he would heal on the Sabbath because heal on the Sabbath was considered medical and you weren't allowed according to ancient Jewish law to do any medical procedure on the Sabbath. And so that is what they're looking at. They saw healing by Jesus as work, even though from Jesus' point of view, I don't think he's even breaking a sweat. When he's doing this, it is very easy for Jesus to do this. And so Jesus, in knowing their hearts and knowing that this is a setup, and he goes into this setup anyway because he wants to teach, he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they're all dumbfounded. They don't know. They, they're just trying to you know poke, poke at Jesus and poke fun at Jesus. And so they remained silent, and he took the man and healed him instantly. And the swelling was down, and so he was able to walk and move freely. He was probably a very happy guy, and Jesus sent him away, sent him out of the room because people... We're probably going to make fun of him now or do something like that. And then he said, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't say anything. And he's saying, so you got wells. You got wells on your property. And little Timmy falls in the well. And your son falls in the well. And you see him. And you say, hey, sorry, son. It's the Sabbath. I can't throw you a rope. That's what he's saying. He's saying, of course. You would throw a rope down to your son. Of course, you would make some sort of contraption to get the ox, the many hundred-pound ox, out of your well, which would be considered work. You would probably have to get other people involved, and you would have to get other people in town into this, including them, in your sin. And Jesus is intimating. Of course, he said, if somebody is in danger. If somebody has hurt themselves or been hurt, and it's on a Sabbath, you're able to do good. You're able to heal. You're able to get them out of the well. You're able to heal this person who has had this disease that the doctors have no idea how to fix. And so this is the, the setting, is that Jesus has been uh, poked at. He has been challenged by the Pharisee class, and he makes them silent. Twice it says they could not make a reply, that they were silent. So they are dumbfounded. They do not feel they can say anything to challenge Jesus. And so Jesus, taking the, the opportunity of, of them being quiet, uh, tells a parable. And we know it's a parable because in 7 it says, now he told a parable. So if the scripture says it's a parable... We know it's a parable. And what is the parable? He said he noticed how people were seated. And this is another thing about ancient Israel, and I do not know how prevalent it is in modern times, but back when you had a stratified culture, where you had a class system, where some people were in society higher, worth more honor than other people, and you were allowed to ignore some people, but you couldn't ignore others and these types of rules, that if you went to a wedding feast, and a wedding feast is a big thing, a wedding feast would last seven days. This is probably the culmination. Normally, if you're having a wedding, especially under Roman occupation, you didn't have a lot of opportunity for parties and events. So if somebody decided to get married some young couple they would turn it into a 7 or 8 day event and people would actually go and stay with the family and stay with the people and turn it into an ongoing event and we saw this in Jesus turning the water into wine is the wedding feast went on so long that they ran out of wine okay so that's many many days And it was it was one of the few great joys they had under Roman occupation to have and participate in a wedding. So they really stretched it out, as it were. And so he says, you're at a wedding feast and you're invited somebody by somebody, the groomsman, the 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 groom would invite people. And they would sit, and they would have a big feast, probably near the end, right before the vows were taken and the wedding took place, as there would be a big celebration, because once the wedding took place, the young couple would disappear, okay? So you couldn't have any celebration with them, the way that Jewish weddings even are today, is that the couple, uh, after they are married, basically leave, and everybody's left standing around. And so this is before that happens, and he says, when you're invited, you show up at the dining room, and you go and you say, well, I'm going to sit right next to the groom, because that's the place of honor, because apparently the way food was served back then is you had seats of honor and seats of less honor, and in a wedding feast, The seat would have been next to the groom, would have been the most honorable. You would have been, you know, king of the hill right here. You would have been the, the best man, we would call them today, is the person who sits right next to the groom. And even in the wedding, and not the wedding, the dinner party that Jesus did the healing in, he saw that they were doing the same thing, that there was this ruler of the Pharisees and people were jockeying for position to sit next to him, because if you sat next to him, that was a place of great honor. If you sat way down here, that was a place of less honor, and then people would have been uh, categorized or graded by their social standing, so you could have gone to any of these uh, important dinners and looked at how people were seated and said, oh, that person's important. Less important, less important, less important, less important. This guy down here, he's nothing, okay? He's the guy who shines your shoes, okay? So you could tell by the way they did their social events how people were honored and dishonored. And Jesus says, well, So you come to this type of dinner or wedding feast, which is very important, and what should you do? He said, you don't pick the best seat. You don't come and say, ah, the seat next to the groom is open, and you scurry over and you sit in it. You don't do that, he says, because if the groom's best friend comes, and you're not it, then the groom is going to stand up and ask you to move and go sit at a lower place. And because people have filled in all the places, it's quite possible the only seat left is at the lowest place. And so you would be publicly humiliated and shamed because you were asked to move from a place of honor to a place of dishonor. Jesus says, instead, when you come to a place like this, go sit in the lowest seat. Go sit in the absolute dishonor, back of the bus, lowest seat. Nobody's going to recognize you back there. And then when the groom shows up, he'll notice that you're way down there and he might say, hey friend, come up here and sit next to me. Then everybody will honor you and praise you because you have been raised up by somebody else. You humbled yourself and you have been raised up by somebody else. And so Jesus is saying In our lives, don't exalt yourself. In fact, the point of this parable is in verse 11. Verse 11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the point of this parable. This is the teaching of this parable. Jesus then goes and gives examples of how you should do it. When you're giving a dinner, when you're giving uh, an event and you want people to come, he says, don't invite people that can pay you back. Back then, like today, if you're given a dinner, if you're given a party, if you're given a birthday party, you will invite people that in your mind you think when they have a birthday party, they're going to invite me. And we'll do this back and forth thing. And there will be a group of people that will move from birthday party to birthday party to birthday party to birthday party because they're all part of the clique that is paying each other back, receiving and giving like it is expected in situations like that. And Jesus says that sort of thing was going on in his day where you would only invite people who could pay you back or you know that your friend makes a wonderful pot roast. So you invite them to your dinner so that when you go to theirs, you get a wonderful pot roast. I mean, that sort of thinking about who your friends are and how you participate. And Jesus says, don't invite those sort of people. You go out and you invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, the people who can never pay you back. And in Jesus' society where you have people who uh, were crippled, were blind. They, in their society, they were not allowed to work and earn a living. All they could do was beg. That is how their society treated those who were not uh, able-bodied. You can't say that today. We can say people that, you know, handicapped, Whatever we're supposed to say, the people who cannot pay you back, and so you would invite the poor. You would go find a poor person who would never put on a dinner party because they got nothing, and you would invite them. And Jesus says, you invite them so that you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. In other words, we are building up treasure in heaven. We are building up... uh, Points for God. We are building up things that God enjoys. We are doing things that make God smile. And these are the types of people that we do good things to instead of just I scratch my back, you, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, that sort of quid pro quo arrangement. He is saying, be generous. Give your stuff to people who can't repay you and you will be repaid by God in eternity. And you say, well, I don't want to wait that long. Well, that's the deal we have. All the major blessings, there's great blessings and grace in this life, but all the big stuff comes when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. Then we're with him for all eternity and it would be great to be in that kingdom And remember how we lived this life, gave up things in this life so that we could be exalted in the next life. So if we look at this and we say, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted, this idea of humility and exaltation is a theme throughout Scripture You find it throughout the Old Testament that God is telling his people through Moses and through the prophets that we are to humble ourselves before God, that we are not great, that we are not fantastic, that we are not somebody who can get God's attention and God say, oh, I didn't notice you. Here, let me give you all these great things because you're such a wonderful person. That will never happen, because we are not wonderful people compared to God. We do our best to get by, but compared to God, we are desperately wicked. We are full of sin. We are rebellious. We are bad, bad people compared to God, and there's nothing that we do that God is impressed by, that God is impressed with. That's why we say we're saved by grace. It is a gift lest we boast or lest anybody says, look what I have done. And so in Proverbs, for example, it says, let one another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and your own lips. And this this is a proverb. It is something that basically says, you don't put a sign in front of your house saying, look at me, I'm great, you're great, and then you let people say, You're great. Now, if this was, this sort of proverb would destroy our current world, simply put, because the world that we have built, the world that sinful people have built, is all about self-promotion. It is all about telling people how great I am, why they have to buy my product, why they have to watch my movie, why they have to listen to my song, Because I'm so great. People do it themselves. I don't know if you watch the award shows. I do not know if those sorts of things, but those are all about patting each other on the back and saying how great you are. The whole idea that I can be wonderful at doing things, that I can, as the old adage says, build a better mousetrap, but not tell anybody about it. They will not build a path to my door to find out what that mousetrap is. Instead, I have to advertise and I have to put it out. And so the idea of humility, the idea of having great skill, having great talent, having great abilities, but you are humble about it. C.S. Lewis has said that humility is not thinking less of yourself so you don't think you're bad, but humility is thinking of yourself less. And what that means is in serving God, I am inconsequential to my service of God. I do not serve God thinking how it will benefit me. I do not serve God thinking how I will get paid back by it. I serve God knowing that I am nothing in doing this. If you look all the way to Philippians, Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which is what our world is built on today. There's nothing going on in the world if it is not selfish ambition and conceit. But don't do anything from this, but instead humbly count others more significant than yourself. So the Christian way, The way a church is to operate is that we don't lord it over each other, we don't say how great we are and how somebody needs to stop and listen to me and do all this kind of stuff, that my way or the highway, these things shouldn't exist in the church because we're not going to change the world. We're not going to go to Hollywood and say, stop it. They'll laugh at you. And so the world's going to do what the world's going to do. The world's going to be all full of selfish ambition and conceit. But in our little part of the kingdom of God, a church needs to be full of humility. We need to put others first and advance others' agenda other than ourselves. And I, I was thinking about this and I said... What sort of 21st century example can we think of from this? There are several examples in the Bible and the one that came to mind is Mother Teresa. That's Mother Teresa in 95, I think. She is an Albanian nun. She passed away in 97, I think. And she was born in 1910, and in 1950 she said, I'm going to give my life to the poorest, most dejected, and disenfranchised people in the world. And that was Calcutta, India. And so she got rid of everything, took only what she was wearing, moved to Calcutta, and started caring for people. In the 90s, uh, the news media figured out about her and wanted to see her, so they sent an airplane to meet the president, and she kept telling the driver to go to the slums and the, the poor parts of D.C. She didn't want to meet the president. She was honored by the U.S. government, and she wanted nothing of it. She passed away at 87, and I think the Uh, the idea of that sort of service and not caring who saw it or not caring what you got in return is something to to look at and to read her story. The Catholic Church uh, made her a saint in 2003 and in 2017 she became the patron saint of Calcutta. So they have honored her even after her death in all these things. But she was not somebody who honors herself. And I think as we look at our lives, as we look at what we're doing, we need to be people who, I don't care how much praise I get, I care how much praise God gets. I don't care how much I get, I care how much you get, for example. As we're working together, as we're doing things, as we're doing the work of God, we should be people who lift up one another. We should look for opportunities to lift up one another. And when you talk about forgiveness in the church, the idea that people are holding grudges or that people are having unforgiveness that goes on for years and years is selfish ambition, is putting me above somebody else, that if I am truly serving God, if I am truly inconsequential to my service of God, that anything can happen to me, I will still serve God, then who am I to not forgive you? Who am I to not lift you up? Who am I to not uh, exalt you in all that we are doing? And that is how the church needs to be. Our love for one another is shown in our exaltation of one another is that I humble myself and I exalt you and you humble yourselves and you exalt the person next to them. And we become a group of humble before God telling each other how great we're doing and telling each other how good our service is to God. Now, we're not doing it to pat ourselves on the back. We're doing it to encourage. We're doing it to exhort. If I'm going around telling everybody to shut up and be humble, well, that's not very encouraging. But the whole point of the Christian life, the whole point of the church life is to be encouraging, is to encourage one another And I encourage one another by living humbly before God. And when he chooses to exalt me, when you choose to exalt me, when I choose to exalt you, then that is all in the love and the grace of God. And we build up one another in the body of Christ. Not as the world does. The world does it by having award shows and by having, you know, big announcements. And we don't have to do that. We do that because God knows what work we're doing, God knows what we are doing, and He is the one who will ultimately exalt us into His presence when He returns. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we do praise You for all the examples we have in Scripture and all the examples we have of great Christian people in this world who are humble and we see their work and we're amazed and Lord we praise you for that and I pray that you would teach us to not advance our own agenda but be humble before you knowing that all we do is for your glory. Lord we praise you for that. We ask your blessing upon the meal to come and the remainder of the day and we ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen.